3: Hi, welcome back to whatever next to our fourth episode. And this episode, we will have our first guest with us, and we will be talking about her book and her experience of consuming different media relating to Asian populations and adoptees. My name is Addie. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm with Hannah and Joe. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Joe. And we have our very first guest, Hannah Lee, the author of The Ones Who Misbehave. Hi. I'm Hannah. Tell us a very short version, brief, who are you? And why are we talking to you today?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I just wrote a book that came out in March. Um, I'm also a Korean adoptee who lives in Kansas. I came here when I was four months old from South Korea and my whole family pretty much lives here. So I, I still live here just because honestly, It's really hard to change, I think, once you've lived like a certain amount of life someplace and you've kind of been a little scared um, that whole time to distance yourself from your family. And then I think, honestly, when the pandemic hit and kind of the, the rise in Asian hate happened, there was a lot of conflict that built up inside me as an adoptee living in a predominantly white environment and just having you know only white friends and only white family members that could be around me um at that time i guess not could but the only people who were and and then trying to communicate some of my feelings or having conversations about some of the things triggering me in my life and there was there was a huge disconnection i think between myself and everyone around me at that time and it became really clear to me that these weren't really my people, (laughs) and that there was a problem with the way my life had been lived up until that point. And so I think it was kind of at that point that I started turning in a completely opposite direction with the people I started engaging with, the communities I tried to be a part of. It was the first time in my life I had actually really acknowledged my adoption and tried to Seek out the adoptee community, the Asian community, just really looking for anybody who could empathize or understand some of the 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 conflict I had in me, some of the mental health issues I was having at that time. So that kind of prompted me to to start writing, um, mostly for myself, just to have an outlet to get some of these things out of me while while everyone around me was was just kind of telling me it wasn't happening and that kind of evolved into me writing a book um <laughs> and and that's kind of where we're at today then I think
3: oh thank you that was so good um so like when you started writing your book what, a lot of adoptees when they publish books a lot of the time are memoirs or nonfiction. why did you choose to write a fictional story
2: um I chose that because I had a lot of topics I wanted to squeeze into my book. And if you write it also in a memoir form, it's factual. It needs to be factual and obviously true to your life and your story. And I didn't necessarily want that to be the case because even though I read a lot of memoirs doing research, it wasn't for the general public. It was for a specific audience, I felt like. And I wanted to be able to hopefully have some sort of dialogue with people who maybe were in the Asian community but not adopted or in different communities who didn't know anything about adoption or or anything about Asian hate or anything about some of the microaggressions and the traumas that Asian people experience on a regular basis that are ignored by many other communities, I think because of the model minority myth, because we're seen as being successful or white adjacent or whatever the case may be. Yeah, it just, uh, yeah, it just really helped me talk about, I think, a lot more topics and try to reach a broader range of people who could at least relate to, if not the racial racial side or the adoptee side, the mental health side of just mm-hmm. what what constant abuse can do to a person.
3: Yeah. Yeah. When you were writing, did you tell anybody that you were writing this book or like, did you keep it like a secret at first or?
2: I did tell, I told my husband, (laughs) but I'm someone who starts a lot of projects and then I'm just like, oh, uh, then I stop and things are left unfinished. So it's funny you ask that because just the other day, I remember asking him specifically, I said, when I told you I was going to write a book, did you think I was actually going to do it and finish it? And he was like oh you know i think by the time you you got to like the the real meat of it he's like i could tell this was not something that you were just going to be like oh i'm over it now i'm over these feelings and i'll just i'm on to the next project because that's kind of the way i am with everything like even jobs even some relationships i have i'm kind of wishy-washy like that so I did tell him. And then as I went along in the story, I remember reaching out to several people, several friends, colleagues, and everyone, every contact I had was white. And so I did go through several different people. I tried to have read some of what I wrote or maybe help with the project and felt, again, a big disconnection with the communication and even um, professional people who look at a lot of like writing and things like that i was a little shocked by their ignorance and lack of understanding for a different racial group i guess Mm -hmm. because for me it just is like we live in a world where there's constant indications of oppression in different groups so for professionals or friends to look at my work and just be like, I don't really know how to respond to this or I don't know how to talk about this with you. I don't even know how to start a conversation to talk about this with you. And I would literally be like, we're starting it right now. Just <laughs> keep going, you know, and, and it, would, it would just end. So yeah, I did tell people, but I think the reaction was discouraging which is another, another thing that really prompted me to have to reach out um, past my own community I've been in my whole life and, and really had to start seeking out people that were capable of understanding mm-hmm. like what I was trying to do and the message I was, I was trying to put out, yeah.
3: I think it's really interesting that you, yeah, were surrounded by this whole environment of people who didn't really understand your perspective, but you still wrote a book before you connected with the online adoptee community. I feel yeah. like before you even connected with any other adoptees, you wrote your book rather than the other way around, which I think, I don't know, I feel like would would probably be something that I would do if I was like intending to write a book because I would need the like reassurance and like the community that I feel like to support me while I was doing this project. But I think it's really cool that you did it anyway before you even connected with other adoptees. Yeah, and
2: knowing that, I often wonder, especially people um, that I talk to uh, about my book in this process, I go back now and read it, and I'm like, it is obvious, I think, in some aspects that there was a lot of research done just internet-wise and reading-wise, but it wasn't personal, personal connections necessarily, that I was building a lot of those facts off of so you know i look back now and i think about particularly how i made an ignorant assumption that if you were korean that our eyes would be similar that our facial features would be similar and especially in the media now with you know a lot of korean shows coming out or or asian cast members on these big productions now especially like watching squid game i realized The reality is Korean people look very different. You know, they have a lot of very different features. I think gender has a lot to do with these differences I'm noticing as well, because everything I had seen up until this point in, I think, the media pretty much portrayed Asian women and Asian men in the same way. And so in my mind, everyone was just like the same version of each other just like slightly different. And so one of the things I really kick myself about in my book is that I didn't have the capacity at that time or understanding or relationships with people to know exactly how diverse appearing the Korean race is. And that's something I've been so kind of excited to see, especially with the more Asian representation in, in film and media these days. It's been... It's been a great learning experience that I'm kind of glad my book has that flaw in it so I can kind of see my personal growth from that point too.
3: That's so cool. <laughs> was that something that you realized because of feedback that you got or was it something that you realized me- yourself from just being exposed to more representation in media?
2: It's something I've just noticed a lot because okay. I, you know, I look for myself self my features and other people so much and then when you actually see someone in front of you and you're trying to see like you know is is the is my forehead and my you know my brow line the same as yours and things like that and you're trying to really find yourself in other people's faces and things like that that it's just been kind of an awakening exposing myself more to the asian community i think oh, okay Yeah, whereas before, you know, I was just assuming things because I lived in a a white community.
3: Do you guys have any
1: questions so far? No, I was just going to say, I think it's really cool, especially um, what you're saying about, like, Swig Game and how... It's basically just rehashing what I suppose we already know but what is actually taken recent years kind of for people to actually understand that like representation for kids in the media is so important and seeing people like you on stage and seeing that diversity in representation. But um I think it's interesting you're talking about the Squid Game as well, because so we have a family friend who was talking to us about Squid Game and kind of criticizing it for the lack of emotion that he felt was being portrayed by the actors and it was like well is it a lack of emotion or is it your lack of understanding of like the cultural nuances in facial expressions and the way that korean expressions differ from western ones so obviously you know displays of anger and stuff aren't gonna look how you expect them to look if that makes sense
2: yeah yeah i agree with that But I honestly, um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of opinions, I think, about a lot of the stuff that's coming out. And I've I've seen honestly the Asian community and the adoptee community really tearing each other apart over okay. nitpicking. This is positive, this positive, is this negative, um, criticizing other people for their aspects of, of what they like about something. And I think that's really just mean. Um, <laughs> Because I would not I would never, you know, in my mind, I would never, no matter what anyone likes, if you like it, I support it. I mean, not like racism and like killing people, but, you know, <laughs> if it's a positive, like normal thing. If <laughs> you like it, I'm going to be like, that's awesome that you like that. Tell me, you know, I want to learn what you like about it so that maybe I can understand why I should like it or be more accepting. And I don't think it's hard to do that, but I find there's a lot of... <laughs> critical talk without a lot of um, understanding behind it. A lot.
1: Yeah, people's capacity for arguments, especially on the internet, is ridiculous. Because we found a post the other day that was like, I'm boycotting Squid Game, I won't watch it, because it commodifies and kind of glorifies violence against Asian bodies. I'm just interested to hear what you think about that, because um, that kind of threw all
2: of us. I respect that people feel that way, but I think if you look at the bigger picture, There's a great story. (laughs) There is violence, but it's difficult because, yes, the people who were running the whole Squid Game show were technically a bunch of white, European, however you want to see them, VIPs, rich people. And I I did read about how the main jerk uh, VIP was supposed to be based off of Donald Trump. So I can understand that there's a conflict of being like, it's still a bunch of white guys using people of color for entertainment value, harming them, killing them, you know, and they they mean nothing to them. They're just a the source of entertainment. Is that not stuff. the point, though,
1: that yeah, it's critical? Yeah. I don't feel like that was a glorification. It was a comment of anything.
3: Yeah, it's more of like a critique on society than the actual, than like the whole series as a flaw itself. Right. Um, so I thought it was yeah interesting that people had to see that take because that's actually the take of the series.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always, I just feel like for myself personally, I don't have a high amount of energy to give to argue something that is either you, you like it or you don't. And if you don't like it, I'm fine with that, but you don't, I'm not going to argue with you about what you believe is wrong with it, but you don't get to argue with me and and push why I'm wrong about something if I'm not willing to engage about that. I just think it takes a lot of energy to be angry about things all the time. And um, I (laughs) I guess I try really hard to see what's positive about something, especially if it's something that I enjoy or connect with a lot it's hard for me then to have to hear the negative feedback because the reason I connected with with it was it was something personal to me, something personal that I saw myself in or saw a bigger story in or the message behind. And so when people come at you kind of saying those things about like, well, you shouldn't like this because of this. It's like, well, you need to understand what it meant to me. Mm -hmm. And then then you decide if you still need to give me that negative feedback because this you know, Squid Game, personally, I've watched it five times. <laughs> this uh, series five girl. times now. <laughs> uh,
3: five times. <laughs> I think, well, um, I can't talk because I've watched it, I think, three, t- two or three times. <laughs>
2: yeah, but see, I'm when I watch it, I'm trying to learn, you know. I, I understand there's like a whole, I've seen the story, I love the story and everything, but now I keep watching it because I'm trying to see... If I can recognize words, I'm trying to learn a language and a culture. I'm trying to learn about, you know, their money system. I'm learning about their systems of poverty that exist in the country. I'm, ex- I'm learning about, you know, childhood games, some of their history, some of their culture, some of mm-hmm. their storytelling that this Korean writer and artist did, and also having a connection with these uh, Korean actors. And it's not about the controversy of the story. It's about me as an individual person who's been basically kept from that my whole life, finally having exposure and just really immersing myself in it just for my, my own sake, I guess.
3: Mm. And are there any other shows where you feel this connection, where you can learn their culture? Well, it doesn't have to be Korean, but any other East Asian representation? in media
2: oh man this is gonna sound really weird but um (laughs) uh, i connect a lot to disney movies (laughs) and i think it's because even though disney does not obviously do a perfect job of depicting cultures and races it was really honestly my only exposure i had growing up to anyone's story obviously there's there's a lot of white Stories, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, all that stuff. But as Disney progressed, you know, we saw a lot of changes in their characters. We had Moana, you know, you have Mulan, you have these characters coming up, um, Raya in, in The Last Dragon, and and things like that that are that are coming up now. And kind of started when I was a child. You know, like Pocahontas was when I was a child, and I remember seeing that in theaters and obviously there's many controversies around the disney movie pocahontas or disney in general but i connected a lot with all those characters that came out that were simply not white and even if they weren't necessarily asian or 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 anything like that if it was a person of color i just felt way more connected to that story and that character Um, and the struggle i think meant a lot more because it was it was kind of personal you know to see (laughs) another person going through that, that wasn't white, you know, so I guess, yeah, I'm not super exposed to a lot of other things. I'm trying to do better as a person to just be as open and supportive with especially all the new Asian films coming out. So, you know, I'm trying now, but I haven't always paid attention to those things in the past, but hopefully going forward, I can be a a much better support. And hopefully, too, it'll help me find some self-identity and branching out in those areas as well.
1: You touched on it earlier, just talking about kind of some of the uh, more controversial like opinions and stuff on social media. That kind of slice of the Internet. That's just so exhausting because it's so mentally taxing. How do you kind of pick and choose like your engagement levels? I know you work as like a media manager for the Universal Asian. Like how do you draw boundaries with yourself when doing that?
2: It's honestly, it's a lot easier with the universal Asian social media for me to take a step back because it's not necessarily mine alone. So I'm fortunate in that aspect when there's um, kind of pushback or anyone has something negative to say, or we're getting some um, negative comments or backlash from people, I can take that to my team and kind of be like, this came up, what should we do? What should I say? Like, and honestly, we have someone on the team specifically for outreach. So even when I see those things, I'm not always the person dealing with them on the back end. I just kind of get to report them. On my own personal social media, it's a, it's a very different thing. I've had plenty of disagreements with people that simply ended with us kind of parting ways online. Um, <laughs> And honestly, I'm okay with that. You know, a lot of people, I think, get kind of touchy about like their followers and losing followers or being obsessive about that. But I just don't have the capacity to argue with people. So generally, if someone tries to have a conflict with me, it's a very short explanation of why you're now blocked and by. you know i'm not i generally try to give it to to have some communication and and make it clear why that's happening or if they're just being abusive i don't have to give them an the explanation but nobody should have to deal with that and nobody should have to feel obligated to be respectful to people who are obviously not respectful themselves so i try very hard not to engage with anything negative because it's just it's not worth the the time. And then, you know, I have anxiety. So I'd replay the conversation in my head later on and just like, really torment myself of you are you were really out of line, Hannah. So I don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, okay, we're done here. Bye, you know, and mm-hmm. less drama, less remorse, I guess.
3: Do you feel like being engaged with all of these online communities and like, meeting people and connecting people through like your platforms has, how do you think that has helped your, or changed your adoptee identity? Do you feel like your identity, adoptee identity has is different online rather than offline in real person? Or do you think that they've kind of helped each other or?
2: Uh, That's complicated because um, (laughs) I started out being completely myself and I didn't, I didn't think anything about my book. It wasn't like I was like, oh, I'm going to be successful. I'm going to get recognition for my book. I thought it was just something I was going to do for myself, and it was going to fall by the wayside, and I'd move on with my life, and it wouldn't be a thing. And I was traveling, you know, for these rallies against Asian hate because I was compelled to do so in my my heart, in my soul. I remember the day I told my husband, I said, I'm going. I have to. I have to do this. Um, I can't sit here anymore and pretend. That anything, you know, I I just can't keep pretending. I can't keep pretending I'm white. I can't keep pretending these things don't bother me. And so everything I've done, I didn't realize was going to kind of lead me to the place I'm at right now. And even though I don't have necessarily that many followers, the followers I do have really, I think, have built up maybe a idea of who they want me to be or who they believe I am based on my social media or based on like maybe meeting me once or twice in real life. And I think the reality behind it is that the person on social media is not necessarily always who I am. You know, there are moments I can be public and there are moments I can be around people and there are moments I can do that. But what you don't see behind the scenes of all those pictures, oh my God, I'm getting emotional. Is, um, is like how scared I was to be there by myself or how hard it was for me to like get on that plane and go to those places by myself or the panic attacks I had before the event or how exhausted I was afterwards and couldn't participate in everything everyone else did. And I think it's getting harder for me as a person because I'm like already really hard on myself, so it's hard for me to live up to these expectations other people.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role.
2: But um, it's really gotten to the point where um, I'm having to hold up this kind of visual repre- representation of who people think I am. And then it's hard for people to understand who I really am when they meet me in person because I'm a mess, you know, like I'm just doing my best every day, but it's, it's a struggle for me. And, um, and then the added pressure of just everything I have to do online. Uh mm-hmm. it gets to be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> sorry.
3: No, oh no, God. I'm I sorry. So sorry. I didn't mean to make you upset with that no, question.
2: It's no, it's because I don't ever talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you yeah. asked me
3: the question that like no one ever asked me. I think that's really important to talk about though, because especially with more adoptees creating these online profiles and accounts on Instagram of like surrounding the topic of adoption and their their own experiences, which I think is really great. But also, there is a part of it where you don't really see the whole transparent side of the adoptee experience where there's like up and downs. And like, when you see an, an adoptee account, and it's just all like full energy, full activism, full, you know, critiques of society. And it looks like on the surface that they have everything put together, they have all of this energy and like, everything to a T. But as a person, as, as an individual, as an adoptee, it's, it's a lot messier than that. <laughs> and I think that it's, it's okay to remind yourself that, that, you know, you don't have to always be the, the front of, of your Instagram account. It's
2: just really hard because I hate disappointing people, you know, and I think that's, that's really an adoptee um, kind of thing is that we are very in touch with wanting people to accept us be proud of us we don't want to cause a mess we don't want to be a problem so i try really hard not to disappoint people i try to constantly be engaging with everyone and i try to be as supportive as possible but there's a lot of times behind that that i'm struggling myself and barely have the energy to be kind to myself or take care of myself But then the expectation is to be constantly present in this space. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I look to a lot of people. I depend on a lot of people. I reach out to a lot of people in moments where I'm struggling. And honestly, the rewards that you get back from, you know, the connections you made and the people you're talking to are so much bigger and so much more rewarding than um, I think the discipline. Appointments of everything, so you know that really keeps me going. But I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's also hard and it's it's a struggle, um, especially for me. And I think a lot of times too, we people with mental health issues are adamant about hiding that and being okay. And you know, when someone's like, "How are you?" you're like, "I'm fine. I'm good. I'm great." You know, "How are you?" and you change it around on them and and try to do that, and it gets really. Exhausting after a while, so <laughs> I think that's just the reality of it. And I've never talked about that before because it's nobody's fault, and it's not my followers' fault, and it's not people who are my friends; it's not their fault. So I never want anyone to feel bad, you know, that I struggle like this because it's it's really no one's fault. But I've had to make adjustments in my life, uh, creating boundaries for myself. And I think also one of the bigger parts of that was how I did engage with people who, who were negative with me. And so I think it's just a constant evolution and just growth and adapting to survive in this new environment. But it's been challenging. I can't lie about that.
3: Oh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. It's really great and you're great
2: oh my god every time I talk to you Addie I end up like crying or break I have oh god oh it's so weird it's like that though with like adoptees (laughs) I'm just like I'm not together I'm a mess I'll show you no
3: we all are we all are (laughs) nobody's actually ever put together (laughs) Uh, yeah
2: (laughs) all right What's next? <laughs> <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> After I cried,
3: we can, if you're comfortable, t- talk a little bit about navigating. I know this is a whole very different topic, but navigating parenthood as an adoptee and speaking about topics that we as adoptees kind of talk to about ourselves. But do you have these conversations and and stuff and with Asian representation in media with your child?
2: Um, it's really interesting that you ask about this. I think particularly because uh, Mila Konamos, um, the Empress Han, and um, Shane from Becoming Bolder, they recently started kind of an adoptee mom group. And it's been great listening to them, um, mostly because they have younger children. And I guess at the time my child was the age of their children, you know, infant, um, toddler, grade school age. I was still very in the white community and and involved with my family. And so I guess I just did what everyone else around me was doing, and I didn't necessarily have time to think about what I was doing because I was a single parent. And so you know, when when you're a single parent, you need a lot of help. You need a lot of help from your family. You need a lot of support from the people around you. And I didn't have the capacity at that point to question myself or if I was ready or any of these things. But I look back now at a lot of things because it's being talked about with uh, the work that that Mila is doing. And they talk about their adoptive parents not being able to support them or help them or distancing themselves from them because that that adoptive mother didn't go through pregnancy and doesn't know how to be around their child when they're pregnant because they didn't go through that, or they're not able to help them during labor, all those things. And I was recently thinking about that and thinking of how selfish adoptive parents are in those situations because... If it was a biological mother, that mother would never be like, well, I don't really know how to help you in this situation. So you're just kind of on your own and then I'll see you a few months after the baby's born once it's like more the age that you were when I got you because I know how to handle that. You know, those are the responses people have gotten from their adoptive mothers when they're having these children or pregnant and things like that. And I also had similar experiences of that. And I didn't realize how selfish it was at the time to have an adoptive mother really just put themselves front and center during that time and really focusing on the things they lost and the things they didn't get to experience and putting all those expectations of how happy you should be that you're pregnant, how lucky you are that you are pregnant and putting that on you. And I didn't really think about it at the time because I was you know, I was just trying to get through my pregnancy and deal with the toxic relationship I was in at that time. But what I've learned over the years of just being a mom is that I have a connection with my kid that I never had with my adopted mom. And it was never going to be there. And it was just because we're very different people, I think, but also because there's a different connection that you have, like, I understand my kid. I understand them without them saying anything. I understand the feelings they're having by the expression on their face. I understand, you know, so many things because we're connected in this way that no one else will have. So then that's kind of made it really hard to look at that taking away from our parents, our biological parents. So it's really honestly taken being a mom and all that too. Oh my God, why am I so emotional? (laughs) Uh, It's because you're asking really like good questions. Like they're really like thought provoking questions. So good job. But, um, (laughs) but it's, you know, it really has been a completely new experience and it's been miraculous, I guess, if we're being honest to finally have that because even though I have an adoptive sister, we're very different. Also, she's very put together and successful, and had always like imagined she was going to be a doctor. Even when we were a little kids, she had like a doctor bag and would always be doing like, <laughs> fake doctor stuff. You know, she had this like drive in her and this kind of I don't know academic achievement goal in mind. And that's you know I don't care about that. That's not me at all but we always got along because we were so different and we always learned from each other that way. But at the same time, I don't want to say none of the family connections I had were real. I just realized now having my own child that there's no severing that bond with my my biological child, my child that, that I carried in my body, you know. I would feel, you know, it, when, when they have a sucky day, I can feel that. But it's like I realize now that when I was growing up, my mom didn't feel that. She didn't get that. And it's really sad to look at that and realize that my whole childhood was like expectations that she had of what she wanted me to be as her child and how she wanted us to be perceived and and things by the people outside of us. And part of that was having to make the decision to disconnect from my family altogether because my child is non-binary and they identify as trans. And my family is white Christian Republican Trump supporters. Um,
3: It's a great
2: combination. (laughs) And it was interesting because at the time that I told them about my child coming out to me, my family had a, they had a lot of trouble understanding like what that meant. And it got really hard explaining it to them and what I needed from them. But I think what really broke everything was the fact that during this time that my child was coming out and exploring their gender identity and trying to communicate with me how I could be a better support and ally, I was also going through um, writing my book and dealing with the trauma of Asian hate and uh, my adoption identity and connecting with the adopted community and understanding what coming out of the fog is. And sometimes when you're coming out of the fog (laughs) and your parents aren't able to have a conversation with you about the identity you're finding in yourself because they shut you down and say, I can't deal with that right now because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the identity of my grandchild. And you realize, I have to deal with that. I have to live a reality where I'm struggling with my identity, with Asian hate, with using my voice for the first time in my life, as well as being a supportive parent who is trying my best to be there for my kid, and yet my white parents and family aren't willing to deal with all of that. They're only willing to deal with one thing at a time that's one of the reasons I had to just uh, not talk to them at all anymore because why do they get to decide that who decides that Who who's just like oh I can't deal with I'm dealing with you know your kids identity and that's all I can do so you need we're not going to talk about anything going on with you right now and I was like I'm writing a book so if you don't want to talk about this then you can just be shocked at what my book's going to talk about, I guess, because you don't want to talk to me about it. And that's what happened.
3: It's like there's a limited capacity for a certain amount of personal issues or social issues that they're willing to deal with at at a single time, rather than just kind of taking it as it is.
2: And that was honestly, I think, my first recognition of what privilege is of what being a cisgender, you know, Caucasian person in this country really means is that they get to compartmentalize issues happening instead of acknowledging and dealing with those in real time uh, like I was and like my family was or my immediate family, like my husband and my child and myself. But it, it really broke my heart, um, <laughs> I guess, and was kind of the final thing that was like, The realization they were never going to get it, they were never going to even try to have the capacity to understand what it's like living simultaneously in all these realities and dealing with those in real time, at the same time, and not having the ability to say, I can't deal with your identity right now, because I'm trying to deal with mine. That's not how it works for certain groups of people. And I I decided at that point in time, I did not fit in the um, narrative of this group of people anymore who who felt they had the right to tell me that they couldn't deal with my identity because they were dealing with my child's uh, trans identity at that time. But also just, just protecting my kid from their disrespect, you know, not using proper pronouns, refusing to use their new name, using their dead name, just whether it was intentional or not, it was just a level of disrespect that I won't make my kid be around. So I just had to make that decision. But this is honestly the first time I've talked about like my family at all. I try real hard not to. Um, So yeah. You're just getting all of it out of me. Today. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, everything I haven't talked
3: about before, let's talk about that. <laughs> um, Hannah and Joe, do you guys have any comments or questions right now? Yeah, thank you so much for sharing um, all of this, though, it really means a lot. And if you're comfortable, just wondering, has there been someone in your life who's like the rock, who's you've been able to talk to and be open and to discuss what you've been going through?
2: Um, yeah, I'm really lucky <laughs> because um, I'm very fortunate to have a husband that's that's super supportive and he's very open minded and he was he was always someone that was like that. And I knew that about him, and that's why we uh, got together in the first place. But I've actually been super proud of him and shocked at his willingness to really kind of do things on his own and and follow groups of people or organizations and people talking about things that matter to me, you know, he's done that on his own, he's been researching and reading and, and trying really hard to understand everything that I'm learning kind of at the same time, so we're at the same place constantly, because, you know, there were a lot of marriages and relationships I saw deteriorate uh, during the pandemic, whether it be pandemic related or, or race related. But I did see a lot of Asian and um, Asian people and their their um, white partners split up during that time, which was um, pretty alarming, but also I, I I got it. But I think the reality is, is if you love somebody and your partner's at a certain place in their life, if you're not willing to keep up, that's how those relationships dissolve. And I've just been really lucky that I have um, my husband who, <laughs> who lets me just like go off on all these crazy rants, um, who really understood when I was like, I have to write this book. So I'm going to just be in a room for months and you need to take care of everything like a kid. And that's going to be on you because I'm going to, I need to focus on some other stuff. And, you know, he encouraged me to quit my job and just focus on my mental health, and um, building relationships and traveling and doing the things I want to do right now and is completely financially supporting um, everything, you know. So I, I, I'm very lucky to have someone in my life that's 100% just here for me. Uh, I don't think a lot of people have that, and, and everyone should, in all honesty. So
3: yeah.
2: thank you for asking awesome. that,
3: though.
2: <laughs> no, I'm I love talking there. about my husband, so... <laughs> <laughs>
3: um is there anything that you would like to say before we wrap up this episode
2: um i i guess i just want to say thank you so much for having me it's been great meeting uh hannah and joe for the first time i've uh, met Addie several times now and <laughs> obviously as i said I've, i i normally kind of break down in front of her because it's easy to have these conversations with people in safe spaces like this um and to show i think your true selves so thank you so much for having me and for the questions you asked that were very, very like deep and intuitive and obviously emotionally um, thought provoking for me. So I appreciate that though, because that's important for me to talk about. It, it's, I feel a lot better. So thanks for my therapy session.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for, yeah, just being so, so honest and, and open with us. Yeah. It means a lot to have these conversations with you. But on that note, I'd like to close with one of my favorite quotes from your book. It is, she's laughing and crying at the same time. And my only hope is that she can come back to this moment whenever she starts feeling alone out there. And that is on page 102. But I just really love that one. because. <laughs> Thanks. You just made me cry. Again. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: If people were looking to get a copy of your book, where would they where should they go to? Oh
2: yeah, okay. So uh, you can go to my website, thehanalerites.com. And it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and
3: Noble. Well, thank you so much for having I mean, for having us, (laughs) I guess. Well I mean for you joining on our podcast and being the very first guest for yeah, the Whatever Next podcast. I feel so honored. Thank you so much. are there any socials which you'd like us to follow on um hannah on social media Uh,
2: sure yeah you can follow me um on instagram it's the hannah league uh hannah spelled h-a-n-n-a no h on the end
3: (laughs) very important detail (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah thank you so much Hi there, thanks for listening.
1: Whatever Next has chosen to help support Rape Crisis Scotland uh, because of all the work that they do to help end sexual violence. They work with 17 independent local rape crisis centres spread across Scotland, as well as running a national helpline year round to support anyone affected by sexual violence. They also work with schools to help teach consent and save sex and campaign to change legislation and attitudes that allow sexual violence and those who practice it to prevail. Which goes without saying that ending sexual violence is a matter that each of us take very seriously. And that's why we've decided to donate the profit raised from the stickers that we're selling to Rape Crisis Scotland. If you want to head over to our website, um, they're on sound also through our Instagram if you just want to DM us. Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening to Whatever Next. You can find more of our episodes on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. With thanks to Matt Ramsey for editing and mixing this episode. Whatever Next is produced by Solar Sounds.